0: Lord, help us today as we consider your word, to allow it to fashion, to shape us, Lord, to to expose our own sinfulness, to see how beautiful, Lord, you are in the expression of your gospel, and that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've entitled this sermon, The Abner Chronicles, Part 2, and its title ultimately is, Ambition. Last week, we saw that God's promises cannot be undermined by military might or aggression. This week, we want to see that God's promises cannot be undermined by man's arrogant and selfish ambition. In other words, what God promises is not thwarted by man who seems to be in control of this world, ruling this world, and is ambitious in that rule of this world. Now, it's a story that many would pay lots of money to see if it were made into a movie. It's a story of sex, ambition, politics, disloyalty. It's a story of men using their power and influence to get their way and ultimately to get their way to the top and to stay close to the top as possible, but as the story unfolds, you'll find that it's really the story of God's providence in bringing about his promises. Now, speaking of selfish ambition, we are in a political climate right now, aren't we? And here are some of the, the slogans from the different political candidates, and I, I am going to list them, not in any particular order, and I'm going to guess the slogan, you can, you can try and guess who the candidate is, okay? Okay? Hillary for America. Yes, that's uh, Hillary Clinton, right? Here's one that I thought was interesting and somewhat humorous, too. Tanned, rested, ready. You know who that is? That's Bobby Jindal. A little humor there. I like that. I appreciate that. All right? He's an Indian-American. Reigniting the promise of America. America. I see you guys don't care about politics. That's good. All right. That's Ted Cruz. New possibilities. Real leadership. Carly Fiorina. You guys are from the Bay Area. You're not getting these. That's okay. Make America Great Again. Oh, okay. Donald Trump, yeah. You just heard that one over and over again, right? Heal, inspire, revive. Ben Carson. A political revolution is coming. Bernie Sanders. mm-hmm. Defeat the Washington machine. Unleash the American dream. That was Rand Paul. Now they're all trying to say something. They're saying what their desire is. They're saying what their goal is. They're saying what their, ultimately, what their ambition is. Or at least putting it in a slogan that's going to be catchy and hopefully get some following. Now, if we were to travel back in time to the setting of our text, we would find three candidates vying for power. And here's what their slogans might be. Let's make things happen. Let's get things done. And that would be Abner. Then there's another one. Establishing God's kingdom in his time, in his way. That's David. And then there's this one. What did I get myself into? I have no idea what I'm doing. Ishbosheth, very good. All right? You're getting the picture here. Now here again is the, is the proposition. Here's what this passage is all about. Man's arrogant, selfish ambition does not undermine the promises of God. And Friends, we, just, we need to, to, to nail this truth down through our shoes into the ground so that we can stand up for God. His promises never fail. And not in the face of any military might, and not in the face of any kind of ambition that you see, you know, taking over your world. And that is going to be unfolded as we look through this text. And we see selfish ambition around us, don't we? We see it in the political realm, of course, where politicians are willing to change their views or say what they need to say simply to get to the top, simply to get your vote. We see it in the business world where people are willing to step on other people even if it hurts them in order to move up the corporate ladder. We see it in sports where a player is holding out on a contract so he can get a few million more friends, this text before us is no exception. It's oozing with selfish ambition. Now notice what it says, verse 1. Just the first part of it, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Think of it more as a long conflict or a long tension between those two groups. And what this reveals to us is that there's a structure going on in this text, a structure that has to do with the house of Saul, which is Israel, and it's Ishbosheth and Abner that are overseeing Israel, and the house of David, which is Judah, and David, of course, is ruling there, and Joab is his right hand man. So we're going to begin now by looking at the house of David. And this is what we're told about the house of David. Verse 1 again And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. David is on the rise. The house of Saul now, Saul's gone, but there is one son left, and there's, there's this decline that's taking place. Now, as we read through this passage, you probably caught the fact that this is a listing then of David and his wives and his sons from those wives. And of course, one of the questions always that comes up is, well, does this mean that God is okay with polygamy? So it's worth at least taking a moment here just to say, that polygamy was never God's intention. And when you see it in the Old Testament as a practice of, in particular, those who are in leadership of Israel or even God's people, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now David, and it will continue on with Solomon, um, we, we can come to the conclusion that there was a great influence from the pagan culture around them to do that kind of thing. But you want to write this down um, in your notes, and that would be Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, where it clearly states there that a king over Israel shall not acquire many wives for himself. The truth of the matter is, friends, that the norm of the people of Israel was for one man to have one wife. Right? You just look at the example of, of Solomon. What was his Achilles heel? It was, it was all the women in his life, Right? God's intention, one man, one woman. All right, enough about that, but it's worth bringing it up. Now, the question, though, is why is this inserted in this text? Because the narrator is trying to show us how David is growing strong. And this is looking at the whole time that he's in Hebron. This is is what happened over the seven-and-a-half-year period that he's in Hebron. What is taking place with David? Well, he has wives and he has sons. Wives are indicating strategic alliances. It mentions not only the wives specifically, but it mentions where they're from. So, for example, Ahinoam and Abigail secured a political base in Judah. They are married now to David, and their home, if you remember, they came to their home territory, is now in this area. So they have support by the leaders in those areas, in those cities where they're from. Then it's also mentioning here Maka, um, and and she established a political base in Geshur. And that was a society, friends, that was just north of Mahanam, where Ishbosheth sat as king of Israel. So you imagine, here you have a city that's just north of of where the the ruler is sitting over Israel, and David now has an alliance with that king or that leader of that, that city. So there's a political base that's going on here through these marriages. That's ultimately what he's saying with the wives. But also with the sons. I mean, look, he had a ton of sons. Well, in in this day, sons meant that you had the privilege of an heir. Not only that, you had warriors that were growing up. So it was just telling us that David was was growing stronger with his alliances, with the birth of his sons. Now, we recognize that his sons ultimately would cause much heartache to David, in particular Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. And that will be later in our story. But the picture here is that David is growing stronger. Now, in the midst of all that, we get this, this next vignette, which is the focus of our attention this morning. And we're looking now at the house of Saul, which is becoming weaker. And we're going to see how the house of Saul is becoming weaker, and ultimately how David grows stronger. And we're, we're introduced once again to this, this character, Abner, not Ahab, but Abner, okay? I even wrote here in my sermon notes, Abner, not Ahab, if you were here last week. You're like, where was he getting that guy from, all right? Abner grew stronger. And the, we can summarize his character, his His persona as selfish ambition in this text. So Abner was a man who made things happen. He got things done. Remember, it was Abner who made Ishbosheth king over Israel. It was Abner who initiated the aggression at the pool of Gibeon and that caused a battle to take place where many were killed. And now Abner is making himself stronger again. And he'll continue to make things happen for himself and for his own growth and his own ambition. And we'll see this unfold in three different ways. Way number one, I'm calling it the arrogant abuse of privilege. The arrogant abuse of privilege. And the story really unfolds because we find out that Abner has gone into the, uh, the concubines, which were um, the... Um, the ladies who were not wives, but they were more property of the king. And he's gone in and he's actually had sexual relations with her. Rispa her name. And um, one of the things that you have to understand in that culture, if someone someone actually went into one of the, the wives or the concubines, it was a statement. The, they were only reserved for the king and for the successor of the king. So these were. Ishbosheth's property now. But what's happening here is that Abner doesn't care about the, might want to say, the structure of that day. He doesn't care about the the, the rules and the regulations of that day. So for Abner to do this, it was to ultimately um, raise a coup against the sitting king. And we're seeing here that Abner ultimately is really the one who's in power. Although Ishbosheth is the king, Abner is behaving like he is in power. So he may not be king, but he is rising up and assuming the privileges of kingship. So he's saying, ultimately, I have the right to these privileges. And of course, Ishbosheth, how does he respond? In weakness. Rather than saying, How dare you? he says, Why? And altogether, Abner is behaving badly, but he's disgusted with the weakness of Ishbosheth. Here's the king that he has raised up. Here's the son of Saul he's raised up. And, and Ishbosheth is, is a weakling in leadership. So he responds in a way that once again shows who's really in power. And his angry tirade includes, first of all, an accusation and then an oath. Here's the accusation. Am I a dog of Judah? I mean, who do you think I really am to be treated in the way that you're treating me now in the way you're talking to me now about going in and taking one of these concubines? Who cares about that? Look what I've done for you. Notice what he says. I have been the one who's been loyal to the house of Saul. I am the one who's protected you from the hand of David. How dare you accuse me of something as minuscule as taking one of your father's concubines? Abner isn't denying the accusation. He's claiming that it's insignificant. And he's claiming that he has the right to actually consider it insignificant. He's above the rules of the kingdom. His loyalty gave him a free pass to behave in the way he did. And so he not only responds with an accusation, but he responds with an oath. And the oath now ultimately is to say, I'm going to change sides. I'm going to leave the house of Israel. I'm going to join the house of David. But notice how it plays out. Verse 9, God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now, first of all, just emphasize there the I. Abner's saying here, you know what? I'm the one who has the privilege, and I'm the one who makes things happen. I'm the one who gets things done. I've taken care of you. I've protected you. Nuts to you. I'm going over with David. And I'm going to bring about what God said he would do to David. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, huh? You mean you knew what God said about David and about David Actually becoming king, and all this time you've been doing what? Rebelling against David, being the king. Just kind of put that in your mind. But notice what happens with Ishbosheth. Just another evidence of his weakness. Verse eleven: and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. See, Abner was really the one who was in power, but he was he was demonstrating his arrogance by his abuse of privilege. Notice secondly, the arrogant claim of authority. He's ultimately saying, I have control or the responsibility of the lands as he comes to David and as he speaks to David. He turns now his attentions toward aligning himself with David because he wants to grow stronger with David. So he sends this delegation and here's what he says. To whom does this land belong? Well, to whom does it belong? Ultimately belongs to David. You might want to say, right? Um, the person who's kind of taken over there is Ishbosheth, because he's king. But he's saying, Mm-mm, "I'm the one who controls the land. Make your covenant with me." Well, why not Ishbosheth? Because I'm the one who has authority. He says, "I have the power to bring Israel over to you." So you see, he's he's claiming now to be the ruler of Israel, who's now coming with this. Might want to say this guarantee of bringing Israel under David. But he has a plan. He's thinking, if I can give Israel over to David, then he will honor me, he will respect me, he will bring me in, he will give me a position of leadership in his kingdom. But David, anticipating Abner's move, has a move up his sleeve already prepared. Negotiations would take place, but hear this, not on Abner's terms. Only on David's terms. And David then calls for his wife, Michael, who had been taken away from him by Saul, to now come and sit at his side and be his rightful wife. So Michael was Saul's daughter, and David had the right to ask this request because he had actually um, fought for her, handed marriage. He had been given um, her to be his wife, and she was his wife. If you remember back in the story in 1 Samuel, she was actually a significant part of of some of his escapes there. And if this request was granted, David will have established three things. This is a very shrewd move. First of all, Samuel, that Samuel was wrong to treat, sorry, not Samuel, that Saul was wrong to treat David in the way that he had done, chasing him, trying to kill him. Secondly, that David is justified in his claim on kingship. So bringing Michael in brings things together, puts things in perspective. It's a way now that he is politically and familially bringing things together, kind of wrapping this, this conflict up in this reestablishment of this marriage, identifying that Saul is wrong, identifying that his, he is justified now to claim this kingship, And the third thing that would happen is the marriage once again to Michael would bring Israel physically and Judah physically together again to be united by marriage once again. This is a very, very shrewd move. I don't think this was necessarily a move that was romantic in nature. This was more a move that was much more political in nature at this point in time. All right? Now... You might read the story and feel really, really bad about Paul Teel, And you know what? I can understand your concern there. But this was an affair of state. And not only that, if you feel bad about him, um, you can blame Saul. Because Saul is the one that married his daughter off to someone who was already married. And this is the kind of stuff that happens if you're not careful about these things. And Saul was just thinking politically. He was just wanting to, to do something harsh to David. And this now is all kind of coming back, and David is benefiting. Now, did you notice that David bypasses Abner in his request of Michael? So here is Abner coming to David and saying, listen, I'll, I'll bring the kingdoms together. You know, I'll do this. And rather than actually negotiating with Abner, he goes directly to negotiate with ish So Abner still works to make sure that David's request is satisfied, he has no choice now. He has thrown his loyalty in David's direction, and he must do as he is told. Still, he would like to think that he is responsible for all the reconciliation and the unity that is taking place. And on one level, he is. I mean, he is the guy that approaches David. He is the guy who's assuming power in Israel. And He is the one who is controlling the lands. But on, a, on another level, God is simply using his arrogant, selfish ambition to bring about his own purposes. See, we got to see this, that, that man in his selfishness, man in his, might want to say, arrogant pursuit of leadership and control is still a puppet in the hands of God. And God's will and his purposes continue to work through man's sinful pursuits. So as we look around the world, or if we look at a candidate and we say, you know, what's America going to be like in five years if this person is elected president? Just remember this. God, even through what you might consider to be evil, is accomplishing his purposes to bring about his end even through selfish, ambitious, self-seeking leaders. Friends, that's really important for us to remember because we can panic during an election year. We can be so worried and get caught up with all the commercials and all the talk that's out there. The third way that we see this playing out is Abner is showing the arrogant sway of leadership. He's ultimately saying to David after this, hey, listen, I have the influence over the people. He's the man who can make things happen. Now he's fully engaged in what he is doing and bringing Israel and and Judah together under David being the king. And he has this new relationship with David, and so he's going to make this happen. And so Abner now goes and takes the gospel to Israel. And by the gospel, I mean the good news that David should be king. The good news is that David is the rightful king. But I want you to, to hear how this unfolds. Look at, um, look at what it says. But It says, uh, verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. Notice what he says here in verse 17. For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to all the leaders... That have been under Israel who've been fighting against David and Judah. So here's what he says For some time past, you've been asking or seeking David as king over you. No, they hadn't. But you see the the way this is spun, they had been following Abner in maintaining a rebellious stand against David. They had joined their men to fulfill the armies that battled together there against the servants of David. They had affirmed Ishbosheth as the rightful king. But remember, Abner is the reason for all that. But now he's trying to rewrite history, he's trying to rewrite the record. He's trying to say, hey, for some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Here is Abner, the politician, speaking so closely to the truth and spinning the facts so as to make himself look better in the grand scheme of things. He had led them into battle against David, but now he is saying, we have always recognized that David would eventually be king. Then why did you take up arms against him? Why did you behave in the way you did? Oh, what are you talking about? We know we've always wanted David king. And then he urges the elders of Israel, saying, verse 18, Now bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Friends, this is spiritual politics. And it helps Israel's leaders to agree. But Abner's motives are not for God and his glory, but only for Abner and self-glory. This week I happened to hear on the radio a particular candidate for president saying you know one of the first things I do when I get up in the morning is I check my email and every morning I get this email from one of my from my pastor and and I love getting that email and it's ev- how I start every day and then they said and and then I, I have a, a rabbi um, who also sends me emails, and I really enjoy. I'm inspired by what he has to say. And you see what's happening here. There's not a conviction about this is what I truly believe. They're saying things to simply fool those people that are out there, saying, ah, see, this is who I really am. No, you're not. That's not who you are. But this is how spiritual politics kicks in. You throw a verse of Scripture out there. Oh, this person must be a Christian. Friends, don't be deceived by that kind of stuff. Don't be fooled, because the word of God can be spoken by great, with great effect, I should say, from the mouth of a deceitful, arrogant, aggressive, and ambitious politician like Abner. This is what God says. This is what he said would happen. Of course, then the question again is, if that is true, then why have you been doing what you're doing? And of course, today... The words of many politicians adjust and change according to the wind of popular culture, don't they? What they say they believe now may become completely different than what they've said in the past. Now, friends, the focus here is not simply to pick on the politicians of the day. It just happens to be the season we're in. These just happen to be things that are coming up. And this really happens to be a political kind of a wrestling match that's going on here. And we've got to be careful that we're not fooled necessarily by the words of politicians that are really empty and just simply trying to buy a vote. So, in any political climate, we as Christians must be very careful that we don't grasp at crumbs of spiritual affirmation by any politician. They might quote scripture, but the question is do they love the gospel? Are they more concerned about the kingdom of God, or are they more concerned about the kingdom of men? or more the kingdom of them. Another question, of course, is what about us? Do we play the Christian card? Do we quote scripture? Do we participate in things simply to impress people, simply to be accepted, simply to be included, simply to win favors, and we're doing it really for selfish purposes rather than kingdom purposes? We can look at Abner, but we can look at ourselves too. How do we respond? How do we try and pretend we're something that we're not? How do we change from one thing to the other without actually repentance taking place? So he takes the gospel of the good news to Israel and he spins a tale that is not true about what their passions have been. But in that, we see the promise of God reinforced again through the mouth of someone who has a selfish ambition. And then he takes the gospel to Benjamin. Why would that be significant? And why does the narrator distinguish all Israel from Benjamin? Because Benjamin was the tribe from which Saul came. And the house of Saul came from there. And so they need to be convinced too. And of course, they are convinced. It says in verse 19, Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all the things, and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Now that's... Abner growing stronger with selfish ambition. But I want you to notice David now growing stronger with what I'm calling holy ambition. Notice the strength of David's position. Although Abner grew stronger in Israel through the exercise of his arrogant, selfish ambition, it is David who really grows stronger. It is David who ultimately is benefited by Abner's pursuit of ambition. Because God uses Abner's selfish ambition as the means to bring about uniting the tribes together. And that is ultimately making David stronger. So these events are screaming at us that God's promises are maintained in spite of man's arrogant, selfish ambition. God's promises are maintained through man's arrogant, selfish ambition. Friends, the team is going to leave here in just a bit, and we're going to go to Ukraine. And Ukraine used to be part of the USSR, and it used to be a territory that was ruled by communism. And under communism, Christianity was barely tolerated. In fact, they wanted to to wipe out a real, living, Christian kind of context. And the privilege that we have is to go to Ukraine and even after years of communism minister to Christians and minister in particular to pastors of those Christians. And it's amazing that God uses the sinfulness of man as a means by which to grow his church. You can think of a country like China that in places has said there should be no gospel witness. And yet under that persecution Churches have grown. The gospel has impacted people's lives. And there's great evangelism taking place. God uses man's sinfulness. God uses man's arrogance. And with that arrogance, expands his kingdom. (laughs) Maintains his promises. Uses man's selfish ambition to accomplish his purposes. Now notice also the strength of David's character, and this might be an area where you scratch your head as you're looking at this passage. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king that they may make covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So with Abner still spouting off his arrogance, kind of claiming I'm the one who can do this for you. I can accomplish these things for you. David does the unthinkable. He makes a covenant with him. He makes a covenant with the with the guy that was trying to undermine his leadership. He makes a feast for him and his men to honor him. And then he sends him away in peace. And we might rightly ask, how can David be so kind and gracious to a man whose behavior has been so despicable to him? Do you think about that? I mean, is there a part of you who wants to go in there and say, you know, sicken David. This, this, guy is, this guy is worthless meat. Just, just deal with him. How can David endure a man who is guilty of hostility and evil deeds toward David's men and God's kingdom? How can David not respond with justice and give Abner what he deserves? And the answer is because David is the anointed king of Israel. His ambition is not selfish, but his ambition is to please his God. My friends, ambition is not necessarily always bad. It shouldn't necessarily always be a bad word, but it needs to be a holy, God centered ambition. Paul says, It's my ambition to preach the gospel where the gospel has not been preached. That was his ambition. That was his drive. That's what motivated him. That's a good ambition. And if you're a dad, your ambition to raise your children in the fear of God is a good ambition. If you're a mom, to do the same. If you're a husband, to love your wife in the way that God wants you to love that wife. And for a wife to to love her husband and to respect her husband and to t- take on those responsibilities. Those are good ambitions because the desire of those ambitions ultimately is to be obedient to God, is ultimately to please Christ, and it's to pursue holiness. It is a holy ambition. And that is ultimately what David is doing here. But hear this. As we bring this passage to a close, notice that what began with war now ends with what? Peace. Did you notice that? What began with war now ends with peace. To a man who didn't deserve that peace, and as much as we don't want to admit it, we are all very much like Abner. We want what we want. And we will make what we want happen. Because we want what we want. We work hard to get our selfish ambitions accomplished. We're motivated by self-preservation. We we rebel against God's choosing of a king because we want to be king of our own lives. Even though we're saying, okay, I'm a Christian, but ultimately we wrestle with these sinful desires to do our own thing in our own way. Now get your Bible and turn to James chapter 3, if you would, please. Just think about what James says here about this. James chapter 3. And We'll begin reading at verse 13. James says, Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. See what he's saying about your desire to be your own king, to rule your own life, to be in control of all your circumstances for you to rule and reign? What is it? He says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be what? Disorder and every vile practice. Is that not what we've just read about? Is that not what has been exposed to us in this passage? But for us, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I mean, this could be a commentary on this passage. Friends, the good news for us is that God is patient in his work with us. He allows us to fail, to dig ourselves deeper into the hole of our sin. Yet when we get to the end of our rope, God invites us still. And he grants us forgiveness when we don't deserve it. And he sends us away in peace when we don't deserve it. Reconciled, restored to fellowship with him. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 say this. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's a picture of Abner. And it's a picture of us. You see, this is what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. He came to pay for our sin, to die in our place, to invite us to come and enter into peace from the war that we have been fighting with him. And it's through him that we are forgiven. It's through him that we find peace. And unlike Abner who doesn't repent of his rebellious sin against God's chosen king, or who doesn't confess that he was wrong to make Ishbosheth king and behave as if Israel were his people to command, or to admit that he has used his own power and influence to try to defy God's purposes. Unlike Abner, we are called to be honest about our sin, to acknowledge that what we have done and what God's word says about what we have done is true. Secondly, to confess that sin as rebellion against God. Again, Abner doesn't do that. Abner just wants to make a covenant without the necessary, you might want to say, mechanisms of this reconciliation. Third thing is to be sorrowful in a right way because we see our sin as God sees it. And then to repent of that sin by seeking forgiveness. So just four things there. This, this idea of acknowledging what God, God's word reveals about our sin to confess that, that sin is actually true in us to be sorrowful in a right way about that sin and how we've offended God and then to repent by seeking forgiveness. Now friends, then and only then will we we be reconciled and restored and be at peace with God? There's nothing in us, friends, that deserves God's grace. There's nothing about us that God looks down and says, you know what, this person's been a good person. They deserve my kindness. Because we are wicked, sinful, rebellious, and alienated people until Christ comes to dwell in our hearts through the gospel. There really is only one king. And his slogan reads this. I died so you can live. Now come and follow me. That's what he's saying to us today. That's what he wants us to see. Even as we look at the life of Abner and his ambition, that our ambition changes when we come to the cross. That God then, having taken us to the cross and where we are reconciled through his gospel, have a new purpose, a new outlook, a new ambition, a holy ambition to pursue Jesus Christ and to pursue kingdom living and kingdom principles and pursue the glory of God. That's what he's calling for us to do. Lord, help us now as we consider the impact of this On our lives today. Lord, even as we celebrate the Lord's table here in just a minute, to consider what we once were enemies and aliens and to consider what we are now friends, your children, part of the family of God. And that's all because of what you have accomplished on the cross for us. And, Lord, we we want to praise you today that, that we see ourselves in Abner. We see that we desire our own selfish ambition. But, Lord, allow us now to be stirred in our heart to confess our sin of that and desire to pursue an ambition that is holy, that is pleasing to you, that will bring glory to your name. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.